We all want equity for all of our kids. Yet, how are we raising our sons to be equal partners at home? Stay tuned after these messages. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the On Boys Parenting Podcast. I'm your co-host, Janet Allison of boysalive.com, along with Jennifer L.W. Fink of buildingboys.net. We are so glad you're here. As always, we appreciate you supporting our sponsors. That allows us to bring you these amazing guests and this podcast. Do you have an anxious son, tween, teen, even younger? Do you see how his stress, fear, and worry are stealing away his joy of being a kid? Maybe you worry about his present and future mental health, but you feel like you don't have the tools or skill to guide him to develop his own internal resources and resilience. Enter Dr. Mary Wild. We've had her as a guest on the podcast before. She is a board-certified pediatrician and mom to eight sons. She has created the Resilience School. So you can help your son move past his anxiety to greater confidence, success, and yep, a greater joy of life. If your son is struggling with anxiety, and one in four kids are, Dr. Mary teaches you the powerful strategies and ways to respond effectively to him. So you can be his guide, helping him participate fully in his life and enjoy doing so. The Resilience School with Dr. Mary Wild is packed with information, videos, support, everything you need to be the guide for your son's anxiety and your own. She is giving you the tools to turn things around so that life can be more enjoyable. Go to boysalive.com slash resilience and click on the link. You'll be taken right to the page where you can find all the resources included in the Resilience School, an eight-week online course designed by a pediatrician, a mom of eight boys, and an expert on helping you navigate anxiety for yourself and your kiddos. Again, boysalive.com slash resilience. And the link is in the show notes to the resilience school. And now on boys. The last thing any working parent needs is to add solve gender inequality to their to-do list. That line is from the intro of a fabulous new book by Kate Mangino, Equal Partners, Improving Gender Equality at Home. Now, we talk all the time. We know how overwhelmed you are. You know I'm right in the trenches with you. So, yes, solve gender equality on the to-do list sounds really big. 
But I also know that the last thing our listeners want to do is perpetrate it because you might not exactly be thinking in those terms, but you're here, you're listening to this podcast because you want to learn more about gender expectations and how those gender expectations and stereotypes affect your boys, their lives and their experiences in the world. You're here because you don't want your son or any boys to be limited by gender norms. That's why I'm here. That's why you're here, Janet. That's the kind of work that will eventually solve gender inequality. So it's really thrilling to realize that a lot of what we're already doing is taking steps forward. And we are thrilled to welcome Kate Mangino to the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. I am very excited to be here. A lot of what I've talked about so far has been um, relationship-based, which is great. And I'm happy to talk about that too. But I think a lot of what I write about is about raising the next generation of boys. So I'm very excited for this conversation. Now you, um, you are partnered and you have a son and a daughter, correct? Correct. My daughter is now 11 and my son is eight. So I have to ask, first of all, how easy slash hard has it been for you and your partner to put into practice in daily life what it's much easier to think about and talk about to others? I think like a lot of couples, it ebbs and flows. So I've had pockets of my life where I think that we've achieved equality and pockets where we backslide. We were great through the birth of our first child. We were able to have flexible work schedules. So I went in a little bit later and he got out a little earlier and we were really able to co-parent our daughter. When we had our second child, that's when the backslide happened for us. I was, I was in school at, the, at that point in time. So I took a semester off and being the home parent, of course, I had a pile of research that I was supposed to read because I was working on my PhD at the time. But you're also there looking at the laundry and the dirty dishes and the child who's crying. Precisely. And I was there when daycare called and your daughter needed to get picked up or there was a teacher work day or or whatever. And he just wasn't home. He just wasn't around. He had the office job that, you know, required 40 hours a week plus commuting time. And then again, we were one of those families that the the pandemic benefited in terms, not in terms of a global scope, but in terms of household equality, because it brought both of us in the house and we were both just here and we could put in the time. You know, I know that the pandemic sent some couples into greater inequality. Mm -hmm. For us, it was helpful just having both of us in the house all the time. So we could both see all the things that needed to be done and sort of split our time up. So, you know, like everyone else, it's a conversation and it's a very long term, lifelong, actually a conversation. That's what I, that was going to be my next question, Kate, is how do you determine? And it does feel, I like that you describe these pockets because there are times in our lives when we're partnered that it's a big project at work and I've got to be gone and he's going to step in, in your book, which I have not read the whole book. I read part of the book and you really talk about how to, there's this male role, female role. And I think it's so hard to get out of that because we were raised that way. And I think because social life is set up that way pandemic threw that all out of the window, of course. And, um, but you talk about the female being the domestic leader. And I think with our, you know, I just so 
feel for our dads, the the men who are are fathering. They didn't have this when they were growing up. They don't have a model that they could see and look at. And so we're like trying to, you know, push this boulder uphill. And maybe our partner is on board with having those conversations and being partly more participatory in household things. But man, if he's not, then what do you do? And how do we get there? And then I have a whole big question about sons and we'll get there too. What, you think that wasn't a big question? That was an easy one? That was an easy one. (laughs) Well, I agree with you. I mean, just to step back a second, I agree with you. I think that a really helpful piece of this work is to remember that we're not talking about individual people that are doing things wrong. We're looking about a social system that social system that we're all born into. And the, the way we raise our girls and the toys we give them and the way we dress them and the values that we instill in them lead them to take responsibility for a domestic space as their number one priority. And the way that we raise boys and the toys that we give them and the values we instill in them lead them to value income generation more than anything else. And so I think that we have to recognize these tracks that we're putting our kids on and break that cycle. Yes. If I understand your question correctly, Janet, it's what if you are in a relationship and you're frustrated? If you're the cognitive laborer and your partner was not raised to be an equal partner and you are feeling the weight of the household on your shoulders. I think that that's where a lot of women are, to be frank. Mm -hmm. I think that there are millions of American women and Mm -hmm. Canadian women who are feeling that that's where they're stuck right now. I think that having a national conversation about it is helpful. So it's not just in one household because I think a lot of individual men are thinking this is just my wife or this is just my marriage. Mm -hmm. So the more we can talk about it broadly to really open people's eyes and realize this is a, this is systemic. (laughs) This is happening across lots and lots of households and elevate that, elevate that conversation away from you and me to partners across our country. And Mm -hmm. and that a lot of people are stuck and I'm stuck. And I guess the way that you go about that is different for each person. I've heard many women say that it's, it's explaining to your partner that by not stepping up at home, you're sending me the implicit message that I'm, that you don't care about me, that I'm not important, that you think of me as a maid, that you think of me as someone who's supposed to do your work, right? That, that it's hurtful, you know, to have that conversation. I've talked to women who have said, yeah, I've had that conversation 20 times and it's not leading anywhere. Yeah, yeah. So I think, you know, there has to be a decision, I suppose, in everyone's life where you think is, do I go to therapy? Do I seek out assistance with my relationship? And that's a decision that each individual person can make based on their resources and their time and their comfort level. One thing I tried to point out in the book is even if you're in that situation and even if your partner isn't budging and even if your relationship is probably what it's going to be, you can still support gender equality in the way you raise your kids, in the way you talk about it, in the way you talk to your younger relatives, in the way you talk about it in the community. I think there's lots of entry points to to participate in gender inequality. And so even if your relationship isn't there, whether you're happy with it or unhappy with it, it doesn't just have to be your marriage. It can be the way that you talk to kids. It can be the way you interact in your faith community. There's lots mm-hmm. of different entry points. And I, that was one lesson I really wanted to get across in the book. 
one of the entry points, perhaps, and this, this occurred to me as I'm reading through your book, I think part of our problem socially, societally, is this overall devaluing of caregiving that has happened yes. for generations. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the term cognitive labor before, and you know this emotional labor, cognitive labor idea is something that I first started hearing words for a few years ago, but every woman I know knows what we're talking about. You know, It's the whole thinking, the planning, the how do we get from point A to point B. You had an example in your book, like you know, when your daughter showed an interest in music, thinking through, well, she might need lessons at some point. So who, who's that? And monitoring all that over the years. And it does. It takes time. It takes effort. Mm-hmm. It is hugely important to nurturing a child. It ultimately benefits all of society for children to receive this kind of nurturing and care. And yet we don't talk about it. We don't acknowledge it. And I mean, frankly, I think it's because there's a lot of people who have a very vested interest in keeping it free and unacknowledged, and you should just do this work. And if you're failing at it, well, then you just aren't trying hard enough. You also make the point that caregiving is so important to expose our boys to. Caregiving is not a gendered thing. Mm -hmm. Humans of all sexes, all genders can and do provide care for others, and it benefits us all when all children are exposed to caregiving and when we talk about these things? Uh, I mean, I agree 100% where to start. So yes, I I think that we do devalue caregiving in our country. And I think one of the reasons why is because it's coded as female work. And I think that we devalue a lot of things that are coded as female in our country. So one way that we could combat the way we see caregiving and involve more men in the household, so two birds, one stone, so to speak, is to bring men into the caregiving space. In terms of um, bringing in adult men to the space, I wrote the book from a perspective, you could definitely make an argument, a justice argument in terms of gender equality, that this is important for the rights of women. You can also make a more utilitarian argument to say it's better for all of us when we live in a more equitable household. And that's sort of where this book is written from because I I interviewed 40 men who are living as equal partners to sort of figure out what makes you tick? Where did you come from? Who inspired mm-hmm. you? Because they're, they're the anomalies. They're the positive deviants. They're doing something different than most of the men in their community are doing. I love that term, by the way, positive deviants. Love right. that because and it really underscores that there are many times, not just this, where stepping outside the norm is a very positive thing. Yes, absolutely. And when I went to them to have those interviews and to get to know them a little bit better, I would ask them, are you giving anything up? And they would come back with this really strong, no, what are you talking Mm. about giving anything up? I gain so much more because I pitch in at home. I feel good about myself, that I'm contributing to my family's finances as well as my family's caregiving. I have a great relationship with my spouse. I have a great relationship with my kids. And the the men who are in that group of 40, I think the youngest member, I one interview I did while he was like bouncing like a six-week-old baby. And then I had men who had kids into their late 20s. And I think I was really excited about the men with older kids because they maintained these very Mm -hmm. close relationships during the teen and twenties years, which takes work, right. For, for any parent, And to hear these men talk about how they get daily texts from their kids, sharing information, wanting their dad to be part of their life, looking for advice, planning time off together. 
because the relationship was obviously very important to kids. So I think that the benefits that come to men when they care give are obvious. And I think that we could do more as a culture to promote those feelings or those that are participating in caregiving with boys, right? Like how, you know, do we give boys dolls? I mean, I know that we've had this conversation over and over, but I think it's worth having again. Are we giving boys play kitchens? It is not not settled. I mean, I am in a lot of Facebook groups for moms of boys because of what I do. And because I am a mom of boy and my boys, the youngest is now uh, 16. So he's way beyond dolls and play kitchens, no matter how you look at it. Yeah. But that question pops up all the time Mm -hmm. yet. And you will often still see, you know, a mom saying, Hey, my kid got, you know, wants this, is that okay? Or my kid wants this and his dad is throwing a fit. And it shows me that there is still an uphill battle in Mm -hmm. a a lot of places. I'm wondering your thoughts on, um, you alluded to this, you, you used a phrase in your book. We need to stop putting limits on male capacity. Yes. And, I mean, that's what we're doing, aren't we? Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we don't necessarily acknowledge that. So if we look at it, not as we're asking you to give up something yeah. like, Hey guys, you've been limited by this, this gender bullshit too. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I call it the men's glass ceiling. The sky's the limit in the professional setting. You know, you can do whatever you want, make as much money as you want, go to the moon. And in the home, we continually make up excuses. Oh, that's not how they were raised. Oh, you know, men aren't good at multitasking. I mean, we've all heard these tropes a thousand times before. And men who are equal partners are offended by that. Like, why do you think I can't be a parent to my child? Why can't I nurture my baby? Why can't I provide? And in this idea of providing for my family, why is that only financial? Why is providing for my family not emotional and nurturing and caregiving. And so I think it's really the way we frame it. I think we have been limiting men. And it's interesting, you know, when I talk to women who, when I hear conversations, let's say two women who both feel the burden at home Mm -hmm. and the one will say to the other, my husband's not stepping up. Like he's just, he's not doing what I thought he was going to do. I feel like our first reaction is to try to solve around him. Oh, have you tried meal kits? Or what mm. if you what if you stopped ironing? Or what if you what if you um, encourage the kids to cook once a week? It's like we we help each other navigate around men that aren't performing at home. I think the other part of that, Janet, I know you hear this a lot, and we talked about it on the podcast. Is it turns out like dad is willing to cook a meal or to yeah. do whatever with the kids but he's not doing it right. Yeah. He's not doing it the way I want it to be done. We women have a huge responsibility to get out of the way. Yes. hundred percent. I think maternal gatekeeping happens all the time in many different areas. When I wrote this part of the book, I was like, I don't want to write this down because I'm going to get women who are mad at me, but I have to write this down. I think that women have, we have been raised to be perfectionists right? And we need to start to let some of that go. And we need Mm -hmm. to realize that that's also a gendered thing that's been instilled in us. Mm -hmm. And we have to start rejecting that. Someone wrote um, on on Twitter a few days ago. uh, Oh, I know it was Leslie Ford at Mom's Hierarchy Needs. I don't know if you've interviewed Leslie before, but she put on her Twitter feed. It was um, her sister said he folded all the clothes, but he didn't iron them. And now it's a mess and I have to redo everything. And Leslie was saying, 
Maybe you don't. No. Maybe you don't no, have to redo no. everything. Maybe you just say, great, the folding yeah. is done this week yeah. and yeah. move on. And I think- Meanwhile, that- my clean laundry is literally just dumped out on top of my dresser because we've both been way too busy to deal with it this week. It's like, pick up yeah. your underwear as you walk past. Yes. <laughs> Choose it yes. from the pile. I like cute clothes. I like having stylish outfits and I hate shopping. Armoire makes getting dressed easier. Armoire is a clothing rental membership option. And Janet and I recently have both tried it out. And you guys, it is so much fun. You go to their website, you get to take a little quick style quiz, takes five minutes, and then you get presented a list of beautiful clothing, pictures, wonderful clothes that you can pick out and get delivered to your house for you to try and wear in the comfort of your own home without going out and determine what looks cute, put together outfits without investing a ton of money. Right now, our listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off your first month. That is up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash envoys. That's armoire.style, A-R-M-O-I-R-E, dot style slash envoys to get 50% off your first month and never have to worry about what to wear again. Try armoire today. One of the most challenging things about being a woman at midlife is realizing how little people understand about perimenopause and menopause, Janet. I just had a conversation with my sister about that this weekend. She is 10 years younger than me, so I'm 51, she's 41, and she went to ask her healthcare provider, hey, can you provide me some information? And she got information, but she was frustrated by how incomplete it seems, how little we know, and how For way too many people, the answer seems to be, yep, that's the way it is. Deal with it. Mm -hmm. Deal with it. And not only are our mamas out there having to deal with perimenopause, likely at this age, but many of our moms are dealing with their sons entering or in puberty, which is kind of nature's irony, which is, oof. Cruel joke, Janet. Cruel joke. Cruel joke. Thankfully, thankfully, increasingly, there are those who are recognizing that women need and deserve competent care and treatment for perimenopause and menopausal symptoms. And we know that can still be harder to access than it should be, which is why we have partnered with Winona. Winona helps women who are dealing with menopause or perimenopause. Winona is a collection of OBGYN health professionals who believe that your symptoms are important, real, and deserve to be taken seriously. Telehealth, you can access care from your home when it is convenient for you. Visit buywinona.com today to start your free visit. With free U.S. shipping and the ability to pause or cancel at any time, your path to wellness has zero obligations. Use the code ONBOYS at buywinona.com for 25% off your first order. That's B Y 
winona.com slash onboys. Winona, menopause care made easy. Kate, I want to kind of pause a little bit and back up to your the, these men that you interviewed, the qualities that they have, and explain to us what is that? What does an equal partner actually look like? Because you know there are the husbands who will oh there's a pile of laundry I'll fold the laundry done check that off the list oh I'll unload the dishwasher oh check that off the list mow the lawn do the things is that an equal partnership? I mean, my definition would be no. So I offer these three behavior patterns that I put on a continuum. We've got king of the castle. We don't have too many more kings anymore. Kings are pretty much our fathers and our grandfathers. I'm like, oh, my dad's still around. (laughs) There's a few of them around, but not as many younger kings. But there are. We got plenty of younger kings. These are the men who think they have no household responsibility. Then you sort of have the middle ground, which are I call them the hands-on husbands. Someone also has called them like the helper husbands. Those are sort of probably what we have most common nowadays. Sure, I'll unload the dishwasher for you. Oh yeah, I can make pancakes tomorrow morning. Oh, you know, Junior needs to be dropped off at soccer. I can do that. But you're managing him, right? You're the cognitive labor and you're handing out tasks the way a manager hands out tasks at work. So he's not up at night thinking about all of the plates that are spinning because he just does what he's asked to do and then he sleeps very soundly. Mm-hmm. which is not an equal partner. It's better than a king, but it's not sure. an equal partner. I think an equal partner, no matter your gender identity, is that you're doing about half of the physical and cognitive labor in the home. And I'm not saying you follow each other around with a checklist every day, <laughs> but from 10,000 feet, when you look at your relationship over months or years, because there are like, you know, when my yes. father was ill, my husband was doing 80% of everything because I was pulled out to, ha- yep. you know, to help with family. Or if, he, if someone has a big work project, you know, for four months, it ebbs and flows, like I said, mm-hmm. but from 10,000 feet, it's a partnership. Is anyone backing off because of gender identity or are you both doing as much as you can because you're, because you're partners? And I think that's, it's that cognitive piece that so many people are having a hard time tackling. Mm-hmm. It's hard because for so long, I mean, women didn't talk about or acknowledge that, not explicitly. You know, we didn't, like I said, until a few years ago, I didn't even know that term, even though it's something I'd experienced my whole life. So we say this a lot, listeners, give yourselves grace. This is something that is is new to many. Uh, you stumble through, you figure it out. There are ebbs and flows you have to experiment with things to find out what doesn't work and yes. it gets messy sometimes. Um, and it may be unsatisfying sometimes You're like, well, that didn't work. Let's try something else. I loved what you said when your father needed extra care, your husband picked up on the home front. I did the online quiz yesterday that you helped the new America foundation come up with, you know, are you an equal partner? And looking at that, I'm like, huh, I actually think I am the, uh, less equal partner right now because I have been busy with this book and my husband has been stepping up admirably and supports that. And so that balance is going to shift again, and that's fine. So listeners, wherever you're at, take steps, just take steps. Well, and I also want to acknowledge that there may be typically women, but they're kind of like 
I want to have control of all these things. I don't want to give up the decision-making about who, who, you know, the music lesson teacher. Mm. I don't want to give up the decision about what doctor my kid's going to go to. I kind of like being in control. There's that. There is that. And I think that that's a really important point to this whole conversation is I'm not actually advocating for equal partnerships. I think I came to write this book because the most common household configuration nowadays is with dual working parents, but one of them is carrying the cognitive load. We call it it neo-traditionalism. You're both working because not very many people can afford to only have one job anymore, but one person is still handling the brunt of the baggage at home. However, not everyone wants an equal partnership and it doesn't work for everyone. I think what I'm most, what I advocate for most is intentionality and education. So just take the time to think through what's choice, what's gender, what are you doing in default? What are you actually enjoying? If Mm -hmm. you, whatever, if you're, whatever your gender is, if you like the control and you don't mind the extra work, great. But at least you've thought through that. And perhaps you will choose your words wisely when you're talking to other people, right? Because you don't want to necessarily assume that what works for you is going to work for other relationships. So talking about how to raise our boys in ways that they are equipped and Mm -hmm. prepared to be equal partners uh, in ways in which we We can't eliminate it, but we can decrease the chances of them being limited by gender norms and gender expectations. You've got a whole chapter on this in your book, which I love that you devoted a whole chapter to this. And because I'm all about the multitasking, busy parent here, I love that so much of it is stuff that we've already talked about many times on this podcast. Talk to your boys. Emotions, don't ignore them. Talk to them, build them up, encourage them. One of the things that you mentioned in your book, doing with your kids, specific strategy that never occurred to me, but I love is household chores versus noticing time. Explain what that is for our Mm. listeners. I think that might be the thing I am most proud of for this entire book. I wish I'd had it 20 years ago. This idea came up. I read an article and someone, this was a woman who didn't have, um, kids, but she said, I'm the one in the house that notices all the little things and my husband doesn't. And I started to really chew on that and to think to be a cognitive labor, you have to anticipate needs and you have to notice what needs to be done. You can't wait for someone else to tell you. And so then I thought when I give my kids a chore list, like please clean up the hallway, put all the shoes away, sleep the floor. They're not doing cognitive labor. I'm training my kids to be a helper, both my daughter and my son. And I was trying to get at the anticipation piece. How can I get them to figure out what needs to be done? The first time I tried this, it was a joke. I mean, they were probably at the time, say five and eight, and my living room was a disaster. I mean, you name it, like empty yogurt things under the couch, like spoons where they shouldn't be, like just ridiculous, you know? And they stood there and I said, what needs to be done to get this room cleaned up? And they were both like, looks, looks good to me. What are you you talking about? I mean, they literally, and so I realized they're not noticing what has to happen. So over the course of the last say two years, while I've been writing the book is I start setting a timer 
20 minutes, 15 minutes, 10 minutes. And I'll say, okay, noticing time, whatever you do, I don't have to do. So I'm good with it. And the first few times they did it, they were like at a total loss. I can't figure out what needs to be done. But then they started to see what gets messy quickly. Like they realized that the sink in their bathroom is often gross. And so now that's a good starting point for them. Or there's often piles of stuff on the stairs that need to go upstairs. So that's a good starting so point. Some patterns, which is really mm-hmm. helpful too for household management stuff. Like as soon yeah. as you said those places, we all started thinking about, you know, those places in our house. Right. And so now, um, now they get it. And now I can set a timer and say noticing time and they know what to do. And the house looks better. And I feel like I'm slowly, slowly having, getting both of them to the point where they're capable of handling cognitive labor. I really love that so much. And, you know, certainly it's worth acknowledging (laughs) our kids often have very different standards than we do. Oh, yes. That's part of the control thing and the perfectionism that you were talking about, Kate. We got to let it go. Yeah. And a lot of couples have different ideas of what clean is, right? I mean, I hear this all the time. And so he thinks he's, he can live with this this amount of dirty. I'm raising my hand high and she can live with, you know, she has a lower threshold, but when you come together as a couple, you probably need to kind of even out and you both need to compromise a little bit. Like, okay, I can live with a little bit more clutter and I'm going to learn how to clean up a little bit more that you need to establish some sort of relationship value. I think that's a good conversation to have with all of our kids too, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, to communally talk about what are our expectations for these common areas of the house? You know, like the kitchen, I need to be able to function in the kitchen. So I need, you know, clean dishes more or less where clean dishes go. And I can't have all the dishes being dirty because then it's very difficult for anybody to get a drink or prepare a meal. My standard for my house, my kids can have their rooms as messy as they want. I mean, if you want to live in that filth, so be it. But let's talk about our our standards and then noticing, right? You know, so we have uh, people coming over. Yes, let's not have the dirty plates out in the living room. This is something I want you to notice. And it occurs to me as my boys are older now and have a couple of them have moved out already. This is the kind of stuff a lot of people don't realize until after they move out and they finally get their own place. Oh, if I leave that dish in the living room, it actually stays there until I pick it up and move it. And that's another way that frequently moms, let's be honest, get in the way of uh, their kids' development and uh, accidentally undermine, you know, those skills that they can be honing because it may seem easier to do it in the moment. But if you look at the big picture, you may be better off leaving that plate there for a while. Absolutely. And I, this is something that I'm guilty of. And my husband actually helps me a lot. I'm the kind of person where I, I just get so used to doing everything that when I see pajamas, so it's summer break, my kids tend to do everything in front of the TV. So they'll change into their clothes and the jammies will be laying next to the TV. And at the end of the day, I'll like start to bend over and my husband will be like, up, leave it there, please. (laughs) Right. And I need to be reminded because I just want it to look better. I just want to clean up but that's not teaching them any lessons. And so I think you're absolutely right. Leave the plate there, leave the pajamas on the floor and remind them, this is, this is your responsibility. And you need, you know, having a conversation about 
we all need to work together to make this family run. Whatever your configuration of your family is, everyone has to do something. And it was a really interesting in the research that I did, 25% of the men, so 10 out of 40, grew up in single mother households. And that was that's what it took for them is they just had that one mom who was constantly saying it could have been any single parent household. It didn't have to be a mother. It just happened to be a woman in these 10 circumstances to say, I can't do everything. I can't mm-hmm. earn money mm-hmm. for this family and do all the cooking and do the cleaning and anticipate all of your needs. So you kids were a team and we all have jobs to do. And growing up in that team environment really helped them be equal partners when they decided to Um, get married or move in with someone. I want to underscore that for our listeners. Certainly not suggesting if you are partnered that you go off and become a single parent to, you know, increase the probability of, no, that's not what I'm saying. But we know that single moms in particular get a lot of negative messaging from society and especially single moms of boys, you know, you're ruining your son and your son won't be a good whatever without a man in his life. We've talked about the value of dads and, um, you know, close relationships with other adult males a lot. You know, we value that, but you're not harming your son by being unpartnered. And in fact, there may be some very powerful things that your son and daughters are learning from you. So keep that in mind. Come back to this moment when you start to go off on that feeling guilty part. Yeah. hundred percent. I mean, Hugh, I've, um, I mean, I obviously respect any single parent household, but I just think that that was what you said was perfect. That so that that was exactly what it took to motivate, right, or inspire these men to be equal partners. I became a single parent through divorce, right? I had been married for 17 or 18 years when the divorce happened, had four kids already. And the truth is the divorce also forced me into picking up other roles into not being limited by the more traditional roles, which we had fallen into because life and role modeling and and all of that life changes happen. Life changes can be stressful and there can be silver linings to that. When we get pushed out of our comfort zones, however, uncomfortably that happens, we can grow and, and learn new things about ourselves and our children benefit from that also. Agreed. Of the 40 men that I interviewed, only two of them grew up in households that role model parity. 38 of them came from households, either a single mom. A lot of them came from households where there was violence and abuse from fathers. We don't have to role model necessarily. I've noticed when talking about this book that there are people who get a little bit defensive as if they think that it's somehow judging their relationship and how much work who does. It's it's really not about that. I feel like in so many other areas of life, we all want something better for our kids than we have ourselves. Mm-hmm. So even if you don't have parity or even if you don't have the model relationship, it doesn't matter. We all, we all partnered up, as you said earlier, Jennifer, before there were words to even describe cognitive labor. We were, we're, <clears throat> we're talking about gender differently now than we did 20 years ago when a lot of us partnered up. And so I think we can be at peace with our own situation and at the same time, help our kids to have something better than we had. I'm thinking about all the, I'm a family coach, so I work with a lot of, of parents of boys and the surprise, if this happens so many times, the surprise from the parents, even the dads, that the 10-year-old boy is actually capable of making his own breakfast and cleaning it up 
of making his own lunch and cleaning it up. There's like a surprise that he can do that. And so, so much of my w- work with parents is around, yeah, you, you know, your boys, even at three, four, five, six years old, are capable of so much more than you are allowing them to do. Mm. Allowing mm-hmm. them to stand at the stove and stir hot soup. I'll never forget my friend who has a three-year-old and he was, you know, she had been there teaching him very traditional household. He participated in that. And what happens for your boys and your girls is that esteem. I mean, and the sense of being capable and I can do this and I, I can participate in the family and I think that's the, that's like the key of bringing this into the next generation, but moms, especially you got, you have to step aside and be willing to let things be done a little more slowly. I mean, I had this conversation with my daughter who has a four month old of like, Katie, you know, you've got to, you've got to let him let dad do more. Yeah. And her response, I mean, you know, I raised her, her response was, it takes too long for him to do it. It was like, there, he'll do it. And he's an amazing partner. And she wants it done like this, you know, because got to get the other things done. Well, and we're like that with our kids so often too, right? Because it takes longer for them to put on their boots. Right. Or to notice the yogurt container under the couch. It takes longer. It's like what you said about the pajamas. And we have to be willing to let it get messy so that they can step in. If we don't create the vacuum, they'll never, like boys especially, like mom's going to do it. Why, Why should I do it? I come across this all the time. We have to remind ourselves that, yes, it may take a few more minutes today, right now, whatever date this is. But this is an investment today that is going to be paying dividends in the future, allowing your child to develop this capability now when he's four or six or whatever is going to make life easier when he's 16 and is going to make life easier for roommates, his partner, whoever he lives with, you know, when he's 36. It's hard to think that this, what I'm doing today is saving me time 20 years from now, but it's worthwhile. Just trust me on this. And I think it's worth noting that it's not just moms and dads, anyone with kids in their life. If you're a teacher, if you're a coach, Mm. if you're a neighbor, if you're a grandparent, if you're an aunt, uncle, I found in my research that actually parents had less influence than I thought they probably were going to. If you see kids for one week a year or every Sunday, you can still have a really big influence. And I think those messages that Janet was just talking about, about creating spaces for boys to be care, to be caregivers. Can you look after a little cousin? Can you take some food to your elderly grandpa? Can you, you know, do some yard work for your neighbor and then to applaud, you know, applaud him the same, not throw him a parade, but thank him the same way you would thank any child. And just to say, We really value that. Thank you. You know, we tend to give accolades for boys when they do boy things, right? Like do well in sports. But when you think about, okay, I need to tell, I need to praise them just as much for caregiving roles is for more boy coded roles. 
that matters over the course of years. They start to realize they're appreciated for contributing to the family in this way. You know, I just flashed to a memory. I'm one of six siblings, so and I'm the oldest. So my children have had the opportunity to have younger uh, cousins, I guess, that they're exposed to. My youngest child obviously never had any younger siblings because he is my youngest. So he didn't get that experience in the family. And this time, I don't even remember which of my brother's kids it was, but you know, relatively new baby that we're meeting for the first time. And my Sam was probably, I don't know, 12. And Sam was all stereotypically boy at this point in time, you know, ball cap. He played with tractors and machines and jeans and work boots, like stereotypically boy all the way. And we're passing the baby around at my mom and dad's house and Sam asked to hold the baby. And so, you know, they put the, the baby in his arms and he held her so tenderly and just the way he looked at her, I'm tearing up because there's a picture. And as you can imagine, it's just a precious, precious picture. And it struck me and the father of the child, because we didn't expect that out of Sam. We didn't know we were caught up in our gendered expectations. Nobody even thought to offer, Sam, do you want to hold the baby? Right. But he did. And he was incredibly tender. And you guys, I'm wiping tears from my eyes. And we're getting ready. Like my extended family's coming over this weekend and Sam will get to spend time with younger cousins and it will be beautiful. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, 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 and that lazy. actually came up in the book is when I would talk, when I was digging into sort of the history of these 40 men and what their upbringing were like. Caregiving was a, was one of the themes that I identified that many of them were had caregiving opportunities in their teenage years that had a huge impact on them. They loved being around little kids. They loved that paternal instinct that was coming out in them. And they knew at that point, I want to be a dad. I want to be a dad. And this is the kind of dad I want to be. But they, you know, a lot of them said, I don't know if I would have put two and two together if I didn't have the opportunity to be a camp counselor, to be a babysitter, to have a younger sibling. We're not going to solve gender inequality today or in this one conversation, but I do think we're making serious progress here. In having this conversation with you, I'm able to look at my life a little bit differently. I'm able to be more conscious of some of the things I'm doing within my family. Huge takeaway for me is that it is extremely important to give our boys opportunities to care give, to give them opportunities to be around both younger and older people so that there are those opportunities. Kate, if you had any one piece of advice or I'll, I'll let you go up to three because this is, this is a big deal. Um, you want to give our listeners, you know, what can they start doing today with their boys and in their families to better prepare them for a more equal future? I would say number one is to think about if you're treating boys and girls differently and how you might be doing that subconsciously. Are we over praising boys for doing household work? Do we have lowered expectations of what boys can do? People don't say the phrase, oh, boys will be boys out loud as much anymore, but I think we've internalized that mindset and it often comes through in our actions and our expectations. And then to translate that to saying, I'll stick to two. So so noticing it in yourself, and that's not, you don't have to sit still for four hours. I'm not asking you to take time out of your day. It's just sort of applying that lens to your everyday as you're going through life in the next few weeks. And then to see if there's any small changes you can make to correct it. I actually use the term because I have an older daughter and a younger son. So he's not only a boy, but he's the youngest in our family, which means the youngest ones often get away with murder because there's someone (laughs) older than them to do the work. 
Yep. And so my husband and I have actually started saying to him, you're not entitled to have your sister do this for you. This is your responsibility. We expect you to do X, Y, Z. We know you can do X, Y, Z. And then we let him have his space to do it. And then when he does it, don't go overboard and give him candy, but just say, that was a great job. Thank you. We we really appreciate your contribution. So kind of making sure that we are raising the bar and our expectations a little bit and maybe lowering our praise a little bit so that they're because that was another thing that came up over and over is when men do do caregiving work and household work, we tend to want to throw them a parade and we need to stop doing that or else they're going to expect a parade every time it happens. Any guy in the grocery store with his kids, right. That's getting the parade. And I'm like, I've been here with four kids, like three times. times? Oh yeah. Yeah. So I think that if, you know, just that cognizance of going through our everyday life, it's not actually asking time. It's just, you know, Try to turn on that gender lens and see if you can find little ways that you can change your speech or your actions to support equality. I love that. And I can't resist putting this in here too, is also to speak to your daughter about how you don't have to do this or you're not entitled to do this, however you want to say it, but also to speak to her, like you don't have to clean up after your little brother. That's not your job. Yes, absolutely. That's great. Thank you, Janet. I love this conversation. Kate, the name of your book, again, is Equal Partners, Improving Gender Equality at Home. I'll put a link in the show notes. Are you doing any kind of, you know, virtual book clubs, appearances? Where can people learn more about what's going on? I have all of my upcoming events listed on my website. It's just katemangino.com. So you can um, find out where all the book club gatherings are happening there. And I'm fairly active on Twitter. My handle is at Mangino Kate. This is a really good book, by the way, to read with a group of people and discuss because it's going to inspire reflection, learning from others. I strongly encourage that. Do it with a group of friends, join one of these virtual book clubs and do follow Kate. That's how we connected. And this is what you get as a result. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me today. Thanks, Kate. Jen and I are always curious about how these conversations land for you, how they change what you do in your everyday life. We love getting emails from our listeners. You can reach out to us at Janet at boysalive.com or Jennifer L.W. Fink at buildingboys.net. We love you so much and hope that this is a valuable conversation for you to give you new perspective. And as always, we appreciate you supporting our sponsors, The Resilience School with Dr. Mary Wild. She's the mom of eight boys. She knows what she's talking about. She's a pediatrician and she has created The Resilience School, helping you help your child manage their anxiety. What can be better than that? The Resilience School. Find the link at boysalive.com resilience. You know, you don't have to watch your child struggle so much with their stress and anxiety. Dr. Mary is going to help you gain the tools and skills that you need so you can guide them to develop their own internal resources and resilience. The Resilience School, boysalive.com slash resilience. 
Thanks for being our listeners. This is the On Boys Parenting Podcast. I'm Janet Allison of boysalive.com, along with your co-host, Jennifer L.W. Fink of buildingboys.net. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.